Amen. If you've got a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. We're continuing this morning, about halfway through actually, with our overview study of Genesis. And what we're doing in Genesis, because we're not going to go verse by verse through all 50 chapters and spend the next 10 years in the same book, is trying to get a handle on the stories, the, the pivotal moments in the stories that Genesis tells that help set us up for the, the rest of the Bible. As Genesis introduces us to themes that aren't going anywhere, for themes that prepare us to understand why Jesus matters. So to that end, today we come to a strange little story, Genesis chapter 11, a story that's known to most of us as the Tower of Babel. And the best way that I know to, to set up this story and, and why it's here and, and what it's trying to do at this particular place in the book is to, to think back to a major moment in American cultural history. About this time last year, the creators of ABC's hit series Lost finally decided to answer everybody's questions and shut the series down. Now, I can't claim to be a big Lost fan. Well, I don't even know what you would call a Lost fan. If a, if a Star Trek fan is a Trekkie, I'm sure that... Lost fans who have the same level of devotion as any Star Trek fans would have some sort of name. I don't know what that is. I'm not one of them. But what I, I did see some of the shows, and one of the things that's, that, was, uh, that was obvious was this particular storytelling technique that they used in almost every episode, the classic Lost flashback, right? They introduce you to a character, and they're, they're interacting with each other on the island, and then all of a sudden it transports you to some time before the, the plane goes down, and it explains something about about how they're behaving now in this moment on the island. I think that's exactly what Genesis 11, 1 through 9 represents. Here's where we've been so far. We just looked at Noah and the story of this cataclysmic flood that, that kills almost everything alive except for those God chose to save through the ark, Noah and his family and a whole bunch of animals. Then after he, he exits the ark... God addresses Noah almost like he did Adam back in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he gives him these blessings to go and fill the earth, to be fruitful and multiply and take my rule as those who live in the image of God to the ends of the earth. That's his commission to Noah. Then chapter 10, which comes on the heels of God giving these charges to Noah, gives this list of all the neighbors that Israel would be familiar with, all the nations who live around them. It's called the Table of Nations, chapter 10. kind of reads like a genealogy, a list of names and, and places, and explains here's, here's where Noah's descendants led into this particular nation, and here's where they lived. And, and that explains that, that all people come from not just this one man and his descendants, but from one God, and assures Israel that, that their God is not just some tribal deity, just like all the other gods. He is the one God of all creation. But in the middle of this of this table of nations. In verse 25 of chapter 10, you come to this little phrase, this little reference. It says, to Eber was born two sons. The name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. Then it just goes on. But it invites you to think, not just what's this stuff about the earth being divided, but how did these nations get to be where they are? How did they each end up in these particular places? And, and if all these people came from one person, how did they end up speaking all of these different languages? That's the, that's the question that, that chapter 10 is supposed to raise for you. And then in chapter 11, you get the flashback. Here's the story that explains how we got to chapter 10 and the table of nations. 
Now, what I hope you'll see as we get into the details of this story is that it's meant to be more than quaint. It's meant to be even more than an encouragement to ancient Israel, though it was meant for that purpose. I think like all of Genesis chapter 1 through 11, it's trying to explain something about the origins of what's wrong with this world, about the fact that things seem so obviously to be not what they were meant to be, where that went wrong, how God feels about sin, and why we so badly need a very specific kind of Savior. Those are the kinds of questions this story tries to answer, and I think it answers them in a timeless and relevant way. That's, that's where we're headed this morning. Now, why don't we read the story together? If you found that in Genesis chapter 11, would you please stand with me in honor of God's Word as we read? This is the Word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in that land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So come, let us go down and confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. The basic distinction that's being drawn up in this story, the basic juxtaposition, is one between the pride of humanity organized together according, uh, along a common purpose and the sovereignty of God who, in the face of that pride and that attempt to go against the commands that he's given, does what he will with those who rise against him. The pride of humankind versus the sovereignty of God. Let's start by looking at the nature of what these folks were up to. What is it that was so wrong about what they tried to do? I don't think we can understand it. I don't think we can, can see what was, what was so dangerous and so subversive about their desire to live in a city together. Unless we look back to those commands that God gave to Noah and his descendants. Right after the flood, when God is doing a sort of restart for creation, he tells them to scatter, right, to fill the earth to go to the ends of it and fill it up as God's representatives. He gave them blessings that were supposed to make that possible. He gave them a covenant even, a set of promises, binding himself to Noah and Noah's descendants to provide for them and to protect them. Somewhere along the way, though, his line of descendants became convinced that God's word wasn't true, that it wasn't trustworthy, that though he had claimed that this, this would give them security, 
that this would give them all that they needed to thrive, that that claim was somehow not believable. What we see playing out at the beginning of the Babel story is a classic attempt to thrive without God. They thought they could do things better on their own and together than they could in obedience to God. That's what's going on when the story opens. And what it boils down to, for them, just like for every human society ever since then, is a drive for security and significance. They want security and they want significance. They want security by building a city. That's what they say. when they, they're, they're all in this plain. They're migrating from the east. And they settle down. They talk about building something together. And in verse 4, when they explain their desire to build a city, the reason they give is that they're afraid of being dispersed. Verse 4 says, Let us build ourselves a city and a tower, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. You see what they're doing? They are afraid of doing exactly what God had told them to do one chapter, two chapters earlier, to go to the ends of the earth, to be scattered and fruitful and multiply and take his rule throughout the earth. They're afraid, though, that if they do that, if they scatter, then their culture will suffer. Maybe they won't even survive. They think that they're stronger together than they would be separate. They think they can accomplish more together than they'd be able to accomplish on their own. What they want is some sort of security. And they think they're going to get it if they build a city. They also seek significance, just like Adam and Eve in chapter 3 came to believe that just living in light of the, the commands that God had given them would not get them all that they could get out of this life. And just like they took that fruit hoping that it would make them wise like God, trying to reach a new status, attain some sort of new level, just like that's what drove Adam and Eve. So here, these folks are driven by desire for significance. They want to matter. They want to accomplish something that they think would put them on another level than if they just followed what God had, had told them to do. Verse 4 says also, they want to build ourselves a city. They want to build a tower with a top in the heavens. Why? To make a name for ourselves. Does that sound familiar? It's timeless. They want to be secure. They don't think they'll be secure if they split up. And they want to matter. They want significance. They want to make a name for themselves. They want to be immortal. They, like Adam and Eve, want to be like God. So why do they build a tower? What's the significance of this tower? If you want to make a name for yourself, why try, why try it this way? I think we learn a lot about their pretension if we compare it to the ancient background of the story. So scholars have recognized in, in this story in chapter 11, it's really kind of a satire on the most important city for Israel's world. The ancient Near East, Babylon, was this sort of new, what New York City is to America or what Paris is to continental Europe. It's, it's the city from which culture and religion radiate and it influences everything around it. And it, it's sort of an ideal. Babylon was that for Israel and its neighbors. And, and part of, the, part of the, 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 really at the center of Babylon's claim to fame was this huge tower that they had built, something called a ziggurat. It was a tower made out of bricks with steps headed up into the heavens. And the idea was that it was some sort of place for gods to go up and back down. That actually their high god, a god they called Marduk, lived there inside of the tower. And so Babylon, the name of that city, according to those who founded it, the way that they understood it, 
was as a, a gateway for the gods or a dwelling place for the gods. That was the claim to fame for Babylon, this huge cultural center in Israel's day. And here in this story, we see Israel making a satire of that claim, of how silly and pretentious it is to try to seek significance in what you can build, ultimately what they see in the Tower of Babel. What, what this story tells us is a visible symbol. The tower is, is, is just a visible symbol of what every sin boils down to. It's an attempt to erase the boundary between heaven and earth. They want a tower that reaches to the heavens, that reaches to God. And ultimately, anytime we trade what God has called us to for what we think is best for ourselves, what we're trying to do is erase the difference between God and us. We want to collapse the boundary between heaven and earth. They did it through a visible symbol, a tower, some sort of monument. We do it through any number of other ways, but the impulse is the same. So as strange as it sounds to modern ears... As, as odd and random as this story of building some sort of tower to make a name for yourself may seem to us, it's a story with timeless relevance. It speaks of a human drive for stability, for importance, to matter, to become like God. And it's the same drive that finds itself in any number of our stories that we've continued to tell over the years, from many great novels to, to, to some of our favorite movies or plays. They're stories about humans trying to make their mark. They're stories of, of pride and of a drive, a deep drive to matter. If that's the pretension that's set up for us in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11, the other main emphasis here, and really the one that, that carries the day is the emphasis on God's sovereignty over those who are trying to make a name for themselves. Everything that comes after this in verses 5 through 9 reads like an ironic slap in the face to everything that verses 1 through 4 tried to set up. The judgment that we're about to read about that God hands down from his place of sovereignty is, is not just random. It is him turning on its head everything they were after. Let me show you how that works itself out. The story turns in verse 5. Up until now, it's all been about those who are trying to build a city and a tower to, to be secure and to be significant. And then verse 5 tells us that the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. At first reading, this may seem like a jarring kind of claim. We tend to think about God as having no body, as being everywhere at the same time, omnipresent, knowing everything. He doesn't have to go somewhere to find something out. He, he has an, a knowledge that is never-ending and absolutely complete. And so this sounds like God's got to go down and figure out what these folks are up to. But I think that's to push the details of the story too far. I mean, think about what we already know about God, even from this little story. He clearly already knows what they're up to, or else he wouldn't have come down in the first place. He knows something's going on. He has knowledge, even though he's not there. And, and what happens after this in the story shows that he's got, he's got complete authority over them because with a snap of his fingers, they're scattered throughout the earth. There's, there's no limitation on God imposed in this story. So why, does it, why is it said like this? Why is the turning point of the story this, this phrase that God comes down to see what they're up to? It's a use of metaphorical language. The Bible's full of it. It's metaphorical language to emphasize how pitiful, how puny this human attempt as significance really is. They're trying to collapse heaven and earth, those boundaries. They want to build a tower that will reach up to the gods. The one true God over all the earth, the one who made it all, he's got to come down just to see what they're up to. 
That's the tower that they've created for themselves. One that is so puny that God has to come down just to see it. That's the point. And when God sees what they're up to, he settles on a plan to give them exactly what they're trying to avoid. So he's concerned about what they're going to do together. That's the language that he uses. They're one people. They have one language. This is only the beginning of what they're going to do. If, if, if all of them with their prideful desires unite together around one prideful desire, they could accomplish just about anything. And so he wants to divide their interests. He wants to pit them against each other, not, as, not strictly as a means of judgment, but as a, as a means of preserving the world as he's made it. And we can see just from our own experience, even in the last hundred years, why, why this makes sense as a way to protect the world. What are the, some of the most horrible abuses in human history have happened in the last hundred years, and they've happened at the hands of totalitarian states, right? Where all these competing interests are erased in favor of one united will to power, right? We think of Hitler, we think of, of the, the Soviet Union and some of the things that were done there. What, what defines those totalitarian states is that anytime there was some sort of other interest, they erased it. They squelched it until it was gone. So much like the American system puts one branch of government over against another, puts or emphasizes all of human freedoms to, to, to combat each other and sort of make sure that the playing field is leveled, is that it's, it does lead to some degree of, of sin and error and abuse, but it's much less so than if there was only one will that united everybody. At least self-interest play off each other and level the playing field. That's, that's what God's doing here, I think. He divides their language... He puts them against each other as a way of preserving what he had made. And the effect is exactly what they had hoped to avoid and exactly what he had called them to in, in his words to Noah and his descendants. Once he's divided their language, verse 8 says that the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. The result is what they most wanted to avoid the insecurity of being scattered abroad. But there's another piece of irony here, too. They started out not just to be secure in their, in their joining together around this city, but they started out to make a name for themselves. And that's exactly what happens. Verse 9 says that the place came to be called Babel. That doesn't mean gateway to the gods, residence of the gods, whatever it is they thought it would mean. What it means now is confusion. It means they're foolish. It means that what they most tried to accomplish was exactly what they couldn't do because God snaps his fingers and sends them to the edge of the earth. Confusion is the name that they've earned for themselves. Obviously, the, the point of all these details is just to emphasize how, how silly it is, how foolish it is to rebel against God's kind and loving will. It reminds Israel, when they first read this story, surrounded by nations that were stronger than them, by nations that claimed other explanations for how the world got here and for who's in control of it now. It reminded Israel that their God was not just some tribal deity, powerful in their camp maybe, but not elsewhere. It reminded them that he's the one and only God of creation and the one, he's the one who, who rules all nations by his will. And that's why so often in the Psalms and in the prophets, when, when Israel is praising its God, it praises him as the one who, who stands above all nations, against whom nations are as nothing. It gives, us, 
it's, it, it, it's one of the reasons one of our most memorable images of God is, is as the one against whom the most powerful of nations are nothing but grasshoppers. They're little cicadas compared to him in his sovereignty. That's the point of Genesis chapter 11, and it's a theme that's going to run through the rest of the Bible. Human societies, when they bound together, bond together, they are always after competing interests to those that God has called them to. But the best that they can offer is as nothing before the one who created heaven and earth. That's the point. Now, if we're honest, not many of us think of the Tower of Babel very often when we're considering how to live our lives in faithfulness to God, much less when we're trying to understand the gospel more clearly. I mean, I'm guilty. I wouldn't have thought of it this week at all if I was not preaching on it. But as with all of Genesis 1 through 11, this story is not meant just to entertain us, as interesting as it is once you understand the details. It's meant to set the stage for the rest of the drama that unfolds through the Bible. We understand the Bible and all of its complexity and diversity to ultimately be one big story about God's attempt, his successful attempt, to win back for himself those very humans who rebelled against him at the beginning. And this story helps to set the stage for the rest of that drama. And we're going we're gonna to build on this more next week when we start to look at Abraham. Because this story is so important for understanding why Abraham matters so much. But for now, let me give you a few examples of how this story continues to matter now. I think that any time we come to the Bible, particularly when we come to stories like this one that, that seems so quaint and outdated, what we've got to look for is where we're guilty of the same thing that the, story, the story's characters are guilty. And we have to look at how the story helps us understand the gospel better. Those are the two things we always have to look for. Those are the questions we ask when we come to stories, especially those that seem unfamiliar and not obviously relevant to us. We have to ask, what's being condemned here and how are we guilty of it? And how does what's being condemned here set us up to understand the gospel better? Why Jesus matters so much to us. So, so with those questions in mind, let me, let me give you a few examples of why this story still matters. First, this story warns us of the terrible effects of pride. One of the things we talked about a few weeks back when we looked at Genesis chapter 3 is that, according to the Bible, and in all of its stories and in its main teachings, really all sin can be boiled down to pride. Because any time we disobey God, what we're, do, what we're saying implicitly is that we think we know a better way to handle things than that which has been instructed, that in which we've been instructed by him. That's a prideful claim. It's a claim to know better than God and his claims. It's at the heart, this, this pride is at the heart of the conflict between God and humanity from Genesis onwards. And it's one of the most insidious one of the most insidious characteristics of it is how deceitful it can be. And so this story is a cautionary tale against rooting out the pride that's in our hearts in places that may seem benign. Whoever thought that building a city would be such a big deal? Why not? Their pride came in deceptive forms, and, and it does for us too. It comes in not just forms like the, the arrogant bombastic sports superstar, the self-righteous Pharisee, ancient or modern. It's not just in those obviously 
recognizable forms, but our pride seeps in in other ways. It shows itself in fear. Anxiety is a byproduct of self-reliance. And when we aren't sure that we can bear the weight, we feel out of control and we get afraid. And we show that we trust ourselves and not God. It shows itself in our desire to please other people. Often by going overboard and being nice and doing really good things to win a name for ourselves as someone who is really nice and does really good things. It shows itself in our defensiveness in the knee-jerk instinct we have to defect, deflect blame from ourselves or justify ourselves or find a challenge to ourselves under every rock. It shows itself in our despair, even. Because often despair is nothing but the result of our sense that we are or that we should be better than our circumstances. That where we find ourselves is not where we should be. We, sh- we are better than the, the conditions that are around us, and that's what makes us desperate, and that's a prideful impulse. All these, however it shows itself in your life, they're all signs of our default, default tendency towards a prideful sense that we're our best hope, ultimately. That we're our best hope for security and for significance. And the message of the Bible is consistent. God is opposed to the proud. Just as much now as he was at Babel. But he gives grace to the humble. To those who rely on him instead of on themselves. One of the reasons Jesus matters so much is that he gives us a clear model of what it would have looked like for Adam and Eve to obey. He gives us a clear model of what it looks like to live as God's creatures in reliance upon God. For Jesus was the one who came not only as a conquering king, but as one who did his father's will and who did it perfectly as one who was kind and meek and came to be served, not to be served, but to serve. He came as one who was in the form of God, but didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and emptied himself of any claim that he had on being recognized as God in flesh. And he calls his followers to learn humility from him as the most vivid of all visual aids. We're called to learn humility from him and to take his yoke on us and to become meek and gentle as we follow. That's, that's the call of the Tower of Babel even more to us now as we see it through Jesus' eyes. It's a warning against pride and a call to trust in him and to follow him. I think another thing that is relevant about this story, and this is, this is very similar to that sort of generic warning against pride, but it's, it's a story that warns us against a misplaced hope in any kind of human society. It's one of the most destructive and consistent tendencies that all people, but even all Christians have had from the beginning, is to put their hopes in what they can accomplish when they come together in society. Ultimately, the Babylites thought they'd find security together. But history is full of examples of Christians who've become convinced that even the kingdom of God hinged on one or another national power. And they've, they've united themselves to, to those who have military strength or who have a lot of money and think that, that, that by attaching themselves to that national entity that God's kingdom is going to be furthered. We've sold out time and again through Christian history to the idolatry that is nationalism. It's nothing new. It's what we see in the story of the Tower of Babel. I don't think it's a stretch to read this story as a challenge to that tendency we've got to remember that nations rise and fall in God's word only. 
stands forever. I think it's a challenge to us to seek the faith of Abraham. Because in Hebrews chapter 11, one of the things said about Abraham in that great chapter celebrating the faith of people who lived in the Old Testament, one of the things that's said about Abraham in, in, in chapter 11, the reasons that he's praiseworthy and, and, and to be imitated, is that he lived his life as one who was looking for another city, as one who was looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. He didn't trust in the security that could be found by flocking to Babylon or staying put in Egypt. He went as a nomad, carrying his tents and all of his family with him, not looking for any permanent place in this world as his primary source of significance or security. But he lived his life in light of the promises of God as one who was looking for another city. I think we can find some faith, encouragement to our faith, and looking at Babel as a warning that drives us to Abraham. We're going to say more about that next week. Finally, I, I think you know, one, of the, one of the questions we always ask of these stories is, how does it help us to see the gospel better and to appreciate it more? And I think that this story helps us to see the beauty of the gospel more clearly in one specific way. The gospel is the reversal of God's judgment at Babel. What Babel represents, we've said from the beginning here, is an attempt to find unity around some sort of human self-interest, to pit ourselves against what God has called us to. The result was a scattering, a division, a, a, a deep tribalism and nationalism that has been divisive and destructive ever since. But God, even in judging them for their attempt to thwart his will by their united self-interest, even in judging them for this, God is not turning his back on the nations as the object of his love and affection. Because as soon as he begins to talk with Abraham in chapter 12, what we're looking at next week, one of the things that he's promising to Abraham is that through him and through his people, he would be a blessing to the nations. The very ones who had been judged and sent to the ends of the earth because of what they had tried to unite around are now being called back together through a united purpose supplied to them by God and God only. That's a story that begins to work itself out through Abraham, but it's one that finds fulfillment in the New Testament. Because now, this division of peoples by language and culture and interests, now it redounds to the glory of the gospel. Because even people with all these barriers intact, even folks who have every reason not to get together on something, in the gospel find a source of unity that transcends even the most rigid of cultural boundaries. In the gospel, there is a call to come together around a shared need for a savior and a shared sense that God's word is true and a shared sense that now we are all adopted for all of our differences. We are all adopted into one family and given one name that stands the test of time, that provides security and significance that can't be found anywhere else. I think the Tower of Babel story is the story that helps us understand the beauty that's in the Pentecost story. Because in Acts, just after Jesus has left the earth forever and given his followers this, these instructions to take the gospel, not just to Jerusalem to all of their buddies, but to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then in Acts, chapter 2, what we see happening is the gospel coming through the power of the Holy Spirit to people of 
all these different languages who are now hearing the gospel come to them in a way that they understand. And thousands of them are responding to that same exact word and now now coming together in a unity that had been dissolved at Babel. Now they, they come back together, but not around their own desires to set up some sort of alternate kingdom to the one that God had called them to. But they come together around the unity that they, they need Jesus and that Jesus' word to them, his promise, the truth that is in the gospel is not something that's limited by any kind of language barrier. And it's one that draws all people to itself. In Pentecost and in the missions movement that Acts launches out and that continues even to today, what we see is the reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. In the message of the gospel is a promise of a name that's greater than any we can make for ourselves. It's a promise of adoption into God's family that extends to all the earth in all of its language groups. It's a call to own his name as our banner, our only true source of significance. And it's, it's a call that we're going to trace together in the next few weeks as we continue looking at Abraham and his family. For now, will you pray with me that God would call us to himself to rest in what he provides as our Father. Lord, we have so much of Babel in us. And so much of our energy is spent on trying to matter. So much of our anxiety and stress comes from fear that we don't matter. We ask for deliverance from this most human of tendencies. We ask for that deliverance to come because we rest so securely in what your Son provides us that we have no fear for the future. Because there's nothing that could come that would cost any more than you've already paid for us through the death of your Son. Would you motivate us by a deep desire to see this gospel extended to the ends of the earth? To see people from every tribe and tongue rally around the exact same message, you know, which speaks to them truly and powerfully in spite of the fact that so many other things about them are different. Would you cultivate in us, even in light of this story and where it goes through the rest of the Bible, would you cultivate in us a greater conviction and a greater joy at the thought that your gospel truth speaks timelessly across all boundaries? We commit ourselves to you and into your hands for that purpose. And we do it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.